ACC Premier Cup, the Capricorn Series in Africa, Southeast Asian Games, Thailand v Zimbabwe, and the Australian Indigenous Tour of Vanuatu. That's all coming up in the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Hello and welcome in again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Daniel Beswick and Nick Skinner here with you to discuss all the action in the associate game and beyond. Another big week, Nick. Plenty to talk about. Just looking at our notes for the week. The ACC Premier Cup run and done. Uh, the Capricorn Series finished. Southeast Asian Games across four formats. Uh, Thailand hosting Zimbabwe. Australian Indigenous Series beginning uh, some test cricket as well with Ireland finishing up their tour of uh, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. Uh, how have you been and how have you kept up with everything going on in the emerging game? Uh, with great difficulty, uh, one could say. <laughs> uh, busy time at work as well. Uh, had some interesting events going on. Reykjavik's really starting to open up and, uh, you know, the the summer's starting. So it's sort of festival season. There's all sorts of things going on all around town. It's, it's a, a great place to be and it's, it's a really fun time at the moment in Iceland. Uh, and we're also, in fact, driving north uh, tomorrow. So yeah, I'm very busy going around this uh, this lovely island, taking a road trip, which is sort of the, the classic way to see it. But uh, yeah, how are you going, Bez? I, I, you had a wedding recently. That, that looked fun. Yeah, I emceed a, a wedding of a good mate of mine, Lockie Mitchell, who actually played a lot of cricket uh, at Narara Wyoming Cricket Club, the club that we both played at, Nick. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. knew him for about yes. 17 years and, and emceed his wedding and uh, have known Emma for uh, as long as they've been together. And she's great friends with Mel as well. So it was, uh, yeah, pretty big one for us. Mel was in the bridal party as one of the bridesmaids and made the wedding cake. And then I was on MC duty. Ooh. So we had quite a bit on. We went up on the Friday. Uh, the ceremony was on the Saturday and uh, came home on the Sunday. It was about an hour and a half north of, of where we are at uh, Cam's Beach Rafferty's Resort, which is sort of in that Gwondolin area, Nick, getting very niche in our oh, yes. central coast uh, <laughs> geography between Gwondolin and Swansea. Very nice part of the world, yes. yes. Yeah, nice part of the world. We went to the Swansea RSL on Friday night, uh, participated in the meat raffle uh, because we wanted to get some breakfast for uh, Saturday morning. We, uh, oh. myself and two mates put together $30 for the meat raffle and we won the first two meat trays that came off the board. So uh, I don't think the locals liked us too much, but... Yeah, money well spent though. I Also, there was uh, a man by the name of James Smith and it'll make more sense in the show uh, today, but he had a sibling compete in the Southeast Asian Games recently. We'll talk about that in a moment. And mm, Good segue to get us back on a cricket. Uh, because he did not get his Filipino passport in time to uh, play international cricket for the Philippines. You have to get your international... Sorry, you have to get your Filipino passport uh, before you turn 18. And he's... Uh, in his mid-twenties now, so uh, he missed the boat. Well, one of his other sisters, he's got three sisters, but one of his other sisters is Lauren Smith, who plays uh, state cricket and, and BBL cricket here in Australia as an off-spinner and does an unbelievable job, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, as mentioned, plenty to talk about in the international game. Um, and also just some housekeeping too. We know that a lot of people are asking about when the new site will be up and running. Uh, no real timeline as yet, but the current site slash the old site is is running fine now, so... We've been able to kind of bide our time, make sure that the, the move to the new site is is good uh, while we're still keeping our our pieces and, and everything together uh, at the old site. So uh, EmergingCricket.com is still the place to, to find your Emerging Cricket news. 
a few things going on, as mentioned, and, and we'll jump into it now. We'll start with the ACC Premier Cup. Last week, we talked about the group stage, and if you need a, a wrap or to be reacquainted with that, probably a good idea to go back to that show. Heading into the finals, we had a lot of rain in Kathmandu, which didn't really help uh, proceedings, but we did get a final, and we did get a result with Nepal eventually beating UAE on the reserve day. Uh, a lot to talk about here, both in cricketing discourse and some afters. There was a couple of brouhaha's on the field between some players, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, when the dust settled, Nepal eventually chased down 117, or they needed 118 to win uh, against UAE on the reserve day. They ended up winning by seven wickets. They were 22 for three uh, in reply. UAE for a, a little bit there thought they might have been a chance of potentially stealing it thanks to their sort of spin bowling group. But Gulshan Jar brought up at number three, a bit of a masterstroke by Monty Desai. Rohit Padel was quick to credit Desai with the decision. But uh, Nepal do the business at home. They're in the Asia Cup. They're set to play Pakistan and India. Whether or not that materializes in terms of uh, the politics going on in that region and that competition is yet to be seen. But the dream is there. The dream is uh, is realized, really, for Rohit Pordell and his men. Um, uh, congratulations to them. And, and I think probably that the most deserving team in that group, given that they're the most informed team, they've won 13 of the last 14 ODIs, might even be 15 uh, with the ODIs that were played at the ACC Premier Cup. But they've only lost one ODI in the space of about three months, Nick, and well and truly informed and uh, all guns are, are firing for them. Yeah, this this is a remarkable turnaround for Nepal. Shows uh, no signs of abating, although I guess the question will be, can they do it away from home? Uh, they've certainly been able to do it in Mulpani, which you know we might get to uh, a minute, uh, but good to see Mulpani hosting its first official ODI. So, um, you know, the fact that Nepal has long had this issue where, you know, they have the TU ground and not a whole lot else. Um, you know, if Mulpani can get up to standard, I know there's been some rumblings about improving facilities from uh, certain sort of uh, from certain power brokers in the Nepali uh, sort of political world, um, but you know not a whole lot has materialised so far. But uh, yeah, so if if they can get Mulpani up to standard, that will take the pressure off TU, uh, which which will be good uh, on that front. But uh, yeah, I mean they're they're playing one of the most remarkable. Uh, you know, they're in the middle of one of the most remarkable hot streaks that I've seen, I mean, in cricket, really. Yeah. Sort of think back to Australia in the, you know, the mid-2000s and, and those World Cup campaigns, you know, that kind of thing. And, I mean, Nepal are just just doing that at this level and it's it's amazing to watch. Um, it's, it's almost a shame that, you know, <laughs> sort of just lurking around the corner, you know that this is kind of papering over the cracks of a lot of their... Um, uh, off-field issues and, and, you know, the administrative problems have kept quiet over the last little while, but that's just because, you know, the, the on-field on success has been uh, so loud. But you, you do wonder, you know, if their form starts to slip, will, you know, the cracks start to show and, you know, all, all the kind of administrative issues come through again you know it wasn't too long that they ran a <laughs> they ran a t20 competition where you know the organizers disappeared out of the country uh, and and a whole bunch of people got arrested by the police a couple of months later so um clearly there are still issues in nepal and and i just hope that alongside the on-field success they've found a way of of kind of bringing their administration uh alongside with them and clearly monte desai has been a, a transformative force and 
I'll, I'll admit to being wrong because you know he's worked with Nepal in the past. He's worked with Canada. He's, he's sort of been around the traps and you know a safe pair of hands, but nothing spectacular. But you know you can't argue with these results and qualifying for the Asia Cup. You know for Asian associates that um, that pathway we can we can maybe talk about that. You know the ACC has been filling out its pathway programs and you know we've got the Asia Cup. At the top, we've got the Premier Cup for people qualifying into you into it. We've got the Emerging Teams Cup, uh, with with you know full member second elevens and, and a couple of the um, uh, down to I think third place at this tournament. Um, so you know they're expanding the women's side as well. Uh, they've got underage programs. Once again, the ACC is just the gold standard for for associate and development. Um, you know from regional bodies and. I know, obviously, they have a lot more money than other regional bodies, but I think even even with the budgetary limitations, the other regional bodies could definitely uh, take a leaf out of their book. But, um, yeah, I mean, very impressive. To, to talk about the match, you know, the final, um, Gulshan Jha was, was impressive. And, and also Bim Sharkey, he only hit, I think, 36 not out, but um, he took his time. He, he really helped uh, Jha there sort of... Jar hit, I think, six sixes in his innings. Um, so he was he was playing the aggressor, but uh, Sharky, we've talked about that compact technique and <laughs> Nepal's uh, kind of wobbles that they often show. You know, they lose a couple of quick wickets and they think, oh no, here we go again. But Sharky in the middle order, yeah, I know he's young and I know we, we've seen a few kind of players come and go, but he looks like the kind of guy that can just provide that stability when when they are wobbling and. I think this is this is putting them in really good stead because they were tested a few times in this tournament. Um, you know, in in the uh, in, you know in that final and uh, you know a couple of moments in the group stages, they they sort of dug themselves out of trouble and uh, ended up being very convincing. So Nepal incredibly impressive across this whole tournament. Um, yeah, the the batting lineup of course has been spectacular. Uh, Sandeep Lamachane named player of the series. Uh, I guess we can sort of leave our comments. Um, uh, we don't need to get into that too much. But uh, yeah, I guess the question for me still is maybe their pace attack. I know uh, there have been a couple of good performances as well with the ball. Um, but, you know, if, if, if Lalit Rajbanshi, with no disrespect to him, um, you know, if he's the sort of destroying bowler uh, against the UAE, you know, where is where is that pace spearhead coming from? And Karan KC is not getting any younger. I know he took five wickets against Kuwait, but yeah, how how do they replace this, the pace stocks is the, the big question mark, I think. It's an interesting point, that last one. It was quite a bit to unpack there. Lalit Rajbanshi was brilliant and... I made a comment on, on, on Twitter this week. He has come back from injury in recent times. And I think there was a little bit there, little period there where he's a little bit out of form and they didn't really favor him. But the left arm orthodox that we know is effective and Tim Cutler somewhere out there in Port Villa is smiling when I make that comment. But uh, it's a tough act to follow for for uh, Lalit Rajbanshi to follow in the footsteps of Shakti Gorchan, who was just such a universally loved uh, cricketer in Nepal bowling his left arm orthodox. But yeah, you're right. Karen KC didn't make the 11 for most of this tournament. Um, and he's a guy that not only bowls reasonably well, he gives you some runs at, at eight or nine in the batting order as well. Sompel Kami, uh, another player. that there is There are a couple of quick bowls around the traps, but 
they just seemed as the tournament went on, they they seemed uh, to lean more into the spin threat of, of their team. And TU was a little bit tired by the end of the tournament. You could tell that UAE went with the same tactic as well. I think they picked four or five spinners for that final, or they bowled four spinners in that final, and they actually kept uh, Zahul Khan and Janaid Sadiq on ice because they just wanted to try and get as many overs out of, of the spin. And Ayan Khan was brilliant mm. with his left arm orthodox of his own. And he's only 17, and then another 17-year-old comes out and Gulshan Jar holds the fort for a little bit, just kind of bides his time. He watches a couple of wickets fall at the other end. And then once he got his eye in, he was imperious. He came down the track to Kartik Mayapan um, with such a long stride. He's a very lanky left-handed player. He's actually kind of hard to compare to anyone. If you watch IPL cricket, he's kind of like a Jaiswal type of player. Uh, Padikal as well, a left-hander who's kind of lanky but can reach um, and, and get on the front foot and actually turn a lot of balls into half volleys. But he's good on the sweep as well. Uh, again, another exciting prospect. And, and yeah, he's a player that they, they kind of moved up the order. And I know that we downplayed the significance of the head coaching role, but Monty Desai now, in hindsight, in retrospect, between you and me, Nick, it's just such a a smart decision. And it's one of the few things that can have probably done a decent job yes. with uh, in the past. And it's only because there's been a coaching merry-go-round of, of their own. So... They almost had their hand forced in a way. But I think the key to Monte Desai's coaching is that that group of players is very young. Uh, not many players there over the age of about 25. And no, you're not teaching a whole lot of technical things at this point in international cricket at, at the high end, even at the high end of, of associate international cricket. But it's definitely a mindset thing. And we know that their batting for so long was crippled by, I think, a poor uh, mindset and a poor mentality, especially in the 50 over game. The 20 over game, they were, they were probably okay. But again, someone like Bim Sharkey, a man that you mentioned there, ever consistent. Just to look at his scores in, in one-day internationals, not counting all the ACC Premier Cup games that have played out, he's only been dismissed under double figures once. Nine innings, 330 runs at an average of 41.25. That tells you almost everything you need to know. You know, his second... Lowest score in that stretch is 17, uh, 17, 26, and then it goes up to 29, 33, 36 not out, which he made in the final, and then the couple of 50s there as well. So, And we mentioned this in the last show, that he has a technique that is quite compact, and there's not a whole lot of flaws in his game until someone kind of finds him out. I I, I can kind of see him doing the, the, the same job for a few more, you know, uh, well, the next generation, potentially, Nepali international cricket. We know the opponents are going to be harder in the next few months. They've got the qualifier on June 18 onwards. Then they've got the Asia Cup, you know, pending that tournament actually happening. So the stakes are raised a little bit higher now and the opponents are a little bit harder. But you'd like to think that on paper, the team that they have on the field is strong enough to challenge. I do worry, and Nick, you made a great point, that... A lot of the things behind the scenes are still not rosy. We know the situation with Sandeep Lamachana, and we're not going to comment about that until everything's kind of run its course legally, I think. Um, on the field, he's still taking wickets. I think he's taken 33 or wickets in 33 consecutive ODIs or something like that. Um, there are still doubts uh, over sort of his future, but... Yeah, look, there's still, there's still problems. The Nepal women's team haven't played in, I think, as we go to air today i think it's 317 days since they've played an international game so there's still issues there 
And one thing that I picked up on on the trophy presentation and uh, allow me, indulge me here, Nick, but one thing that I picked up on the trophy presentation, (laughs) this is something that's a pet hate and it happens in a lot of places. It doesn't just happen in Nepal. It happens in a lot of places and it's one of my pet hates. We saw the trophy presentation or the trophy gifted to uh, Rohit Padel and Monty Desai. The only problem was the people that were presenting in the trophy also ended up lifting the trophy with them, which is a huge no-no for me. You know, they're not part of the team. They weren't the ones on the field responsible for winning this. It's just, it's a bit cringeworthy. And to be honest, I don't like it. It's not a good look. And then when you went over, as Rohit Padel and Monty ran over for the trophy presentation with the rest of the team, there were still dignitaries well within the shot in amongst the congregation of players. It's 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 a bad look, to be honest. Um, you didn't play a part on the field, so don't try and claim lifting the trophy. And especially with Can in the state that it's in. Yeah, what what are they lifting the trophy for? Uh, it's probably not the best time to kind of show your face. Like, I guess now... I know that you've been somewhat successful on the field, but how much of that is down to 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 Can leadership? If anything, a lot of this success has been in spite of what what Can has been over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, as you say, this is uh, not limited to Nepali cricket or even limited to cricket. You know, you see it in all sorts of sports. Honestly, I never really watch the trophy presentations anyway, so it doesn't really affect me. Um, I, I'm just going to take the opportunity to, uh, you know, speaking of dignitaries. And completely unrelated, <laughs> I met the Icelandic president yesterday, um, <laughs> which was really fun. He he's he's a cool guy. He was he was a writer before he became the president, and he translated some Stephen King novels into Icelandic. So we had a we had a good chat about uh, Americana and uh, how to how to render that in, into Icelandic, which, uh, as you can imagine, is quite a challenge. Uh, but yeah, oh, uh, it was quite fun. It's very interesting cultural difference. You know, he just sort of turned up at the at the party and uh, you know, made a speech and wandered off. You saw him walk down the road by himself, no security goons or anything. Um, so that's, that's Iceland for you. Just meet the president at a party, as you do. Oh, what is your life, Nicholas? That's unbelievable. <laughs> You'll never forget that day. It's all, yeah, it's, I can imagine translating uh, yeah, American English into Icelandic is not an easy task. Mm. That's, I suppose when you're Icelandic, you've got to wear many hats and your resume would look quite interesting. I, I remember uh, their Euro 2016 football team that made such a great run. Their goalkeeper was uh, a professional filmmaker as well. I think he's actually done some pretty cool stuff and and some mainstream uh, television, you know, in in that part of the world. And I think the manager or something was a dentist by trade or something like that. So, look, the story checks out, Nick. I I just love that's that's what your life currently is at the moment. That's quite funny. Yes. Well, I mean, I know Tim is basically best mates with uh, Vanuatu's prime minister, so I'm just trying to compete with that, you know. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. Small ponds, I guess. The, the pool of people that you meet is yeah, I think, ultimately I think smaller. Very much. Actually, I think Iceland is a pretty similar size to Vanuatu, actually, I think, in, in terms of population. So that, that checks out as well. Um, but yes, let, let's get back to cricket. And one point I would actually like to make regarding the organization is it's just a bit of a mess with the playoffs. Uh, <laughs> it was sort of frantic uh, attempts to try and figure out what the tiebreakers were going to be. Um, and then N- Nepal went through... Um, you know, with their semi-final washed out against Kuwait uh, on superior group results, but then Oman in the third place playoff, they they nabbed that third place and a spot in the emerging teams tournament based on their pre-tournament seedings. So it seems kind of inconsistent that 
the, the teams are being sort of pushed through based on two different uh, two different things, which yeah. So I, that was a bit strange. Um, not great for Kuwait um, <laughs> having two washouts there instead of getting a result on the field. But uh, I mean, you know, you look at the the match situation. They were what six for thirty odd against Nepal, chasing two hundred and eighty. Probably not going to win that. Uh, and, and then, you know, they'll bowl out for 130 with Oman cruising in that other game. So, yeah, I mean, realistically, they probably wouldn't have uh, had, stood much of a chance in either game. But, yeah, it's it's always very unsatisfying to have these teams. <laughs> well, it's, it happened to them twice, you know, then they didn't get a chance to finish both games on the field. Um, but, yeah, I mean, good effort for them making it to the semifinals. And, and once again, just shows the depth in the Asian region. Just, just a, a PSA, I think, for anyone running a tournament, it's pretty important to make these distinctions clear in, in any playing conditions that you put out before the tournament. And these playing condition documents need to be readily available for all parties, you know, not only for the teams, which I'm sure they were, they were privy to, but also to media houses and, and other parts of, of the cricket world trying to decipher what's going on here. Because if we want this to have the coverage it deserves you know we need to know those facts and and this is not just an ACC problem you know I know for a fact too that the ICC has been a little bit lackadaisical in the last quarter kind of recent tournaments the qualifier playoff is probably one example where there was a little bit of confusion in terms of the playing conditions and seedings and, and how it would work if we had a situation like inclement weather or uh, equal points and not going on net run rate but going by head-to-head record. There's just a lot of confusion and it needs to be kind of cleared up before the tournament starts. And it's all well and good just telling the teams who are there and the teams playing. But, you know, there are plenty of media organizations out there, us being one of them, trying to understand, you know, what all of it means. And we can't do that without that being made clear or, you know, someone on the ground actually being uh, uh, to be the, the person responsible for this correspondence yeah i've just noticed that, it, that it's happened a little bit more probably in the last six months across everywhere and no one's really got it right we know under 19 women's world cup was the same thing as well where there was confusion about points carrying over to super six stages and, and stuff like that and the wording was actually unclear in that playing condition document so then when you had to get it rectified that needed further clarification that these need these things need to be ironed out and proofread and and rewritten in such a way to make it clear for everyone and we're also dealing with english not being you know the first language for a lot of these teams especially in the in the acc region so that's actually really important to to get right i did feel for for qa I share your sentiments in that they probably they probably wouldn't have progressed anyway. Um, but there is a nice, interesting little sort of sliding doors moment here in that Oman are a team that look old. Um, it has to be said. The, the team there, a lot of those players are in their mid-30s. Mm. Bill Khan was the leading wicket taker of the tournament. You can't take anything away from him. But you look at that overall playing group, I'm not too sure where the next kind of generation of Oman cricket goes. Uh, Akib Ilias, you know, broke his hand again, or he was injured again, he broke his hand this time. Uh, he's one of the younger players, Kashyap Prajapati, a couple of players like that. But yeah, that for someone like Kuwait, who were definitely on the up, they beat Hong Kong uh, last week. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about that because that actually happened after we recorded last week. But, you know, they're a team that are on the rise and I can only see them moving up. And, and right now I only really see Oman 
heading downwards. I know that they finished above them here, but I don't think that will be as clear a distinction for much longer, especially if, you know, a lot of the Omanis sort of give it away in the next couple of years. Um, one more point I, I do want to bring up, and we can't go the podcast without mentioning this. There were more <laughs> confrontations and, and brouhaha's in the final between UAE and Nepal. I don't really know what's going on because I, we know that Rohan Mustafa is quite a respected figure in this level of emerging cricket. A lot of guys get along with him really well and off the field, everything seems to be okay. He's just managed to be the common denominator in a lot of things happening that have been somewhat unsavory. And I'm not sure if he's just playing it up to the crowd yet and he's trolling or it's kind of <laughs> deep down. There are a couple of confrontations confrontations with Asif Sheikh. Um, I'm not sure if he's trying to play like a fake villain, like he took a wicket and ran over and laid down in celebration. Um, <laughs> that was comedy, though. That was good. I, I was, I didn't mind that. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious, but I also don't know, you know, what the ulterior motive is in all of it. Color me confused, Nick. I'm not too sure what's going on. The umpire was there to quick to snub a lot of it out, but. Uh, yeah, I'm interested to get your take on it, on all of it as well. Oh, look, I. <laughs> I think, yeah, as you say, Rohan Mustafa off the field. I, I haven't heard anyone really say a bad word about him as a as a human. So I, I think it seems like it's all in good fun. And and as you say, he's just sort of uh, playing up the the pantomime villain. I think of Stuart Broad a few years back. Yeah. Um, he he's he's always a stirrer. Rohan Mustafa. He's just one of those guys that just you know, he thrives on conflict and just does, always likes to create a bit of niggle with people. And uh, but it, it seems like it's all in in pretty good fun. You know, they're shaking hands after the game, and and it all looks okay. Um, it, it's a fine line though, isn't it? In between, you know, he's, he's being being funny and uh, you know be, being a jerk. Um, so yeah, he, but I, I just I, I keep thinking of um that that podcast from a few years back where PDP compared him to Claude Lemieux. From um, uh, a nice hockey player who was uh, renowned for being, uh, yeah, just very confrontational and, and always, uh, you know, did everything to win. And, and Rohan Mustafa is definitely that kind of guy. Loves a scrap, loves a, loves a bit of niggle. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's good. Adds adds to the spectacle. And I, I don't know what the lying down thing was about, no. but it was quite funny, certainly from from the outside. Yeah, plenty. <laughs> Jeez, I tell you what, like a, a sociologist would have a dream trying to dissect and, and get through uh, all of that. It was an enjoyable tournament, though, and and just to tie a bow on it, well done to uh, the ACC for actually putting on a, a great tournament. And you mentioned it before, and we, we've said it in previous shows. We've had Pankaj Kimji on the show as well. The ACC looks to be in relatively good hands. The only issue now is with the Asia Cup in the offing, what happens between Pakistan and India? It's out of everyone else's control, I, I think. Uh, and a few contingency plans need to be put in place. But, you know, for now, the, the Nepali Asian Cup dream is a reality and and they will be able to take on some of the big boys. It's a pretty big moment for, for them, not just in Nepali cricket, but also in Nepali sports. So good luck to them. And I'm sure the fans are, are soaking it up. They did well to, to be... Uh, there for two days in the pouring rain, watching watching their team play it was quite commendable. Well, soaking it up is the operative word there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, shall we shall we move on to the Capricorn series uh, in Namibia? It was taken out by Uganda. Great tournament this in the end. Uh, Hong Kong and, and UAE were there as well, 
getting some experience in a different part of the world. We know uh, that UAE were also at the uh, Victoria Series too. So a uh, nice big tour for them. Uh, Uganda coming out after winning the Victoria Series at home have come out and actually won this tournament as well. So fair play to them. Nick, you uh, saw quite a bit of this series. Thought Namibia might be a little bit disappointed by the way that they came out and played. UAE once again showing uh, that they're a little bit of a point of difference in that their batting is is strong in associate spheres. Uh, but overall, the team, the Ugandan team, I think is probably the strongest in this region across both facets, and and ultimately that's led in in their victory here. Yeah, it's interesting to see. You know, Uganda won that Victoria series at home, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and they've they've flown down to Namibia here and they've they've claimed the silver again. Um, so I, I just wonder if the you know the experience of winning is is kind of you know people talk about winning being a habit, yeah. and you know Uganda they you know, Namibia were definitely the best team in the group phase. Uh, they only lost their you know that last game uh, against Uganda in the group phase. That was that was a pretty tight thriller there as well there are a few uh really exciting games actually here um it, it was a really fun tournament uh, but uh yeah i think maybe just you know the the uh you know the occasion and uganda having that experience in the final uh back home sort of helped them over the line uh that they, they didn't particularly I, I don't i think only one game they crossed 100 that was when proscovia alako hit uh 80 odd against the uae uh, she looked quite good in that game, but she couldn't really repeat it in any of the other uh, matches. And you know, we've seen that a lot with Uganda. Is often their bowling is their strong suit. Uh, that's that's. I mean, that's the case with a lot of these teams, as you say. The UAE is kind of the <laughs> the exception here, where a lot of the time it was their batting that was kind of keeping them in the game, and, and their bowling looked looked just a bit threadbare. You know, they they hit. Um, yeah, you know, they got over a hundred a few times, and and but they didn't. They weren't. They only won two games in, in that, uh, in that whole series. Um, and you know, same with Hong Kong. You know, they were just a little bit off the pace, but you know, they still managed to get two wins there. One against the UAE, and uh, one one against, uh, one against Uganda, where uh, Tash Miles hit uh, sort of fifty odd, um, and and they chased a, a target, a low target pretty comfortably um yeah i don't know i mean uganda if they can get their batting just a little bit more consistent you know you know just just hitting sort of you know 110 maybe 120 instead of you know sort of 80 90 99 kind of range they'll be they'll be a real handful coming up through this uh through this africa region uh, it would have been interesting to see zimbabwe i know they had other commitments but you know where are zimbabwe uh, you know, how do we gauge them against the rest, of, you know, the best of the rest in Africa? Because, um, you know, I don't think they're that far ahead. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, a couple of Ugandans being uh, picked up for Fairbreak, which was interesting. And, and, you know, good to see that Fairbreak was paying attention to this series. Uh, Irene Alumo, uh, the fast bowler who's who's coming through, you know, she's she's uh, coming to the team sort of a couple of years ago and, and she's uh, starting to really put a stamp on being the leader of the attack and um you know that's that's something a lot of these teams lack is is a good fast bowler to to lead the attack and um you know maybe once uh, Fiona Kalume can can sort of sort her action out and and get her uh consistency up they'll be a pretty dangerous uh opening pair as well and yeah obviously the spin contingent uh led by uh, led by Kontiaweko who's always so consistent um once again uh you know eight wickets here 
miserly economy rate. Um, you know, one of the top wicket takers uh, of the last little while in in women's cricket. So, um, you know, you, they've got a they've got a strong core of bowling to build around, and they just need one or two other batters to just step it up a little bit more frequently. And um, you know they'll be they'll be really bashing down the door in, in that Africa region. Uh, Namibia, you know, as as we said, probably a little bit disappointed they couldn't get the silverware, um, especially after you know they came second in the Capricorn series last year, uh, came second to Zimbabwe. Um, some interesting questions, you know, where's where's Sh- Sylvia Shehepo? Um, is she still in the UK? Maybe because I, I know she had a stint there at one point, yeah, you know, last year, but she hasn't played. For Namibia since since the European tour last year, where I think she sort of slotted in uh, and then went off to, to play in the UK. So you know, maybe she's still playing in the UK, or, or I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, that's something you know, if anyone from Namibia is listening and has more information, that would that would be good uh, to hear because you know she's one of their top bowlers. Uh, Wilka Motile though played played really well, got the Player of the Series award. Um, her batting seems to have come along quite well. Uh, she she bowled very well. Seven wickets, very consistent, um, a very you know, very tidy economy rate uh, across the tournament. Um, but her, her batting as well, um, she hit a number of sixes, and she she seems to be uh, you know really working on using. Uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know the long levers. Uh, you know, she's quite tall, and and she gets good uh, good power down the ground, hitting uh, you know sort of using her height. So um, if she can she can keep working on her batting. Uh, that's something to keep an eye on, especially since, you know, Namibia, they they did struggle for runs a bit. Uh, Adri van der Merwe, uh, Sune Wittmann hit a 50 and then didn't really do a whole lot else. Um, but yeah, the, the, it was really out of form. Um, Rasta Dierhardt had a terrible series. I don't think she got 50 runs in the whole tournament. Um, and, you know, if, if you're paying attention to, the, to last year's uh, Victoria series, she was the one who hit a half century to get them home against Zimbabwe. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, you would hope she bounces back and, and this is just a blip, but uh, yeah, concerns there for Namibia because that that opening slot is something that they've struggled with and, and it seemed like they had uh, Dierhardt sort of nailed on as, as the, uh, you know, the reliable, uh, technically compact one, but then she got shuffled around the order as well uh, and they went back to uh, sort of Sune Wittmann, um, yeah, a couple of other players, um Coming up and down, Estelle Fanzale is another one who we sort of hoped would would come along with the bat. Uh, you know, she just has that kind of uh, crouching stance and good power, but yeah, she couldn't get many runs this this series either. So in theory, you know, the the Arasta Dierhardt Estelle Fanzale combo at the top is a very good one. You know, with the the reliable, technically compact Dierhardt and and Fanzale's power, but yeah, they're they're just both really struggling for form there's there's a lot of good points uh, a lot of uh, positives to come out of this uh <laughs> kayleen green's bowling uh you know she's i think she's taken over as namibia's top wicket taker i might get corrected uh irene van sale also bowling very well um so yeah again the bowling not so much of a concern but yeah there's just a lot of questions with the batting and, and it sort of seems like the ingredients you know are mostly there but they they just they just aren't quite clicking, and and that really cost them in the final. Yeah, ninety for four, and Yasmin Khan was forty not out opening the batting, and you can't really take away you can't really take away from Uganda's bowling effort, which was tight. Uh, but if you're batting twenty overs and you only make ninety for four, your opener makes forty not out of fifty two balls. There's there's probably a few questions there in regards to uh, acceleration. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's the kind of target they should really be backing themselves to chase. Uh, and, you know, it's a pretty typical Uganda scorecard there, 93, uh, five weeks down after 20 overs. And, yeah, the, the fact that Uganda, yes, they bowled well, but, you know, if you're Namibia, you shouldn't be letting them uh, defend that. And we can't even say that the the pitch was a was a culprit because they're playing at United, which, as as we saw in the uh, the the men's uh, World Cup qualifier playoff, it was a total road. So uh, yeah, that's that's something. Uh, you know, that that's not an excuse available to <laughs> to anyone. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Hong Kong looked good in patches. I think they'll. Probably be pretty happy, honestly, with with the fact that they got two wins. Traveling away from home, uh, they don't do that too often, especially not in Africa. I think you said it was the first time they were playing the women's team outside um, outside Asia, which is quite believable because yeah, they don't they don't play a whole lot. Um, you know that that sort of top middle order with with uh, Tash Miles, Mariko Hill, and and Marina Lamplow. That's that's the engine room of their batting uh, and has been for for a couple of years now, um, and. Yeah, they're kind of a bit like the UAE in that they they do actually have a, a decent batting lineup, although they they couldn't quite piece it together um, as effectively as they probably would have wanted. And um, yeah, Betty Chan, total star with the ball, you know, um, eleven wickets, sub ten average economy rate um, in the fours, hard to argue with that. And and she's just been a trooper for them for for so many years. And um, yeah, I, I think Betty Chan is. Uh, one of their, I don't presume to uh, to think I know when she might retire, but uh, you know she's certainly uh, certainly been around for a while. She, she's uh, approaching, I think she's 35 or so. Um, so you know, <laughs> where where do they find a replacement for someone like Betty Chan? Um, but that's a question for tomorrow. And uh, you know, congratulations to Chan on on another successful tournament. Yeah, I'll actually go back to Namibia and, and bring up Wilka Motile who. Um, as mentioned by you, Nick, has sort of moved up the batting order in recent times. She's already taken 40 T20I wickets, but um, is playing a bigger role with the bat. The 22-year-old coming from, uh, was born in Eshikena, which is right at the north of the country. And um, the one thing that Namibia have really tried to do in the last few years is to ensure that there are opportunities for uh, budding high-level cricketers uh, to play in in high performance teams that come from outside of of Fintook and and potentially Volvis Bay as well, so it's Wilkem Motile is is the kind of embodiment of I believe that focus. I'm not too sure how if she if she say moved to to Vindhook, uh full time at at a certain age, but that's the the pathway now. And we know that uh, in terms of development awards and other things, Namibia have been recognised for for that push. So. Uh, seems to be, you know, a, a direct result of that, and, and yeah, for Hong Kong to to gain some some experience in in Africa, I, I think is is great. And and to bring up to kind of round out the the point here with uh, UAE, yeah, they are the exception to the rule, aren't they? In that you know they posted some massive totals, 182 for four in in one of the matches. I think that was against Hong Kong. Um, they couldn't chase down Uganda's 159 in the other game, which makes me think that yeah, it's the it's the bowling, if anything, on on UAE's side that that needs to improve. Um, but one of the players here, Kavisha uh, Agadage, who again made consistent runs across this tournament and also uh, in Uganda during the Victoria series, been nominated for 
uh, ICC Women's Player of the Month for April um, on the back of this. And it's uh, a, a tough field with Naramol Chaiwe also in it and, and Careless in Love of Zimbabwe. So two associates and, and a Zimbabwe player in that that three in the running for, for those awards. We might talk about Thailand and Zimbabwe in a moment, but uh, to bring it back to Zimbabwe and their position in this region, uh, we saw it in the Under-19 Women's World Cup where they were beaten by Rwanda and their full membership almost was uh, a detriment to them because they didn't get the chance to play in regional qualifying. Zimbabwe not here on tour in Zimbabwe, and granted they are playing some high-level cricket at the moment. But again, I think the overarching point that we need to make here is that you look to the Africa region and, you know, with women's T20 World Cup qualification around the corner, Uganda have kind of put their flag in the ground and almost made themselves the team to beat. Uh, Not too sure, you know, how Zimbabwe are going to stack up. But, you know, if Uganda continue in this vein of form and, and win the important games, you know, the tournament finals and, and, and games against good teams in this region, you never know. It, it might just be another result of the Ugandan Cricket Association being so strong at the moment, both on the men's and women's side, Nick. Yeah, definitely one of the one of the more dynamic teams in this region and you know, things are looking up and, yeah, very two very exciting teams. You know, the men's and the women's are both, both looking good at the moment. Um, yeah, can they qualify for something a bit higher up? That would be that would be great for their cricket. I, I think probably just at that next level, their batting is going to be the question. But it, it will be very interesting to see how you're going to go at you know the next time there's one of these Pan African sort of uh, you know the big qualifying events because they they're always there or thereabouts. You know, final, semi final, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Uganda, the, sort of the the leading three teams. Tanzania's there or thereabouts as well. Um, so. Yeah, can can Uganda sort of pull ahead from that pack and and be the ones to to challenge uh, Zimbabwe? That that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. But yeah, if they can unearth even just one sort of more reliable batter, yeah, I think they're in probably a, a very good position because their bowling really looks after itself at the moment. How many times have we said that over the years on this pod? If a team had one more, true, bat, true. it'd be an unbelievable team. It's just it's just a common theme across associate associate nations. Um, and again, I think it's it's the result. Well, the reason why is because you know there's never been enough match practice for 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 batters, and it goes back to the point. You know, in the nets, you can bat and bat and bat as long as you want. It just doesn't quite simulate what goes on on the field. It's a point that we make all the time, and I don't think we need to harp on about it. But again, a great tournament, and fair play to, to UAE and Hong Kong for getting out there into Africa. We know UAE might have the advantage of, of being uh, in probably the best airport hub in the world, but you know you still need to endeavour. You need to go out there and, and, and play international cricket wherever you can, especially on the women's side as well. You know We only mentioned 20 or so minutes ago, Nepal's women not being able to play for almost a, a full year. And it, it's not even down to COVID now. It's just down to um, either a lack of scheduling or or a lack of uh, events to, to really get around. Uh, we will move to the Southeast Asian Games, but I think first we'll, we'll make the point about uh, Thailand and Zimbabwe finishing up first because Thailand have actually gone over to the Southeast Asian Games. They hosted Zimbabwe first. Uh, we talked about the one-day internationals last week, which the Thai women won three games to nothing. In the T20s, Zimbabwe actually took the uh, first match by 24 runs, though fell in matches two and three. They were slated to play four matches 
in the end, they uh, had to move around matches two and three due to the storm that they had uh, the third tight cricket club in the outskirts of Bangkok. It meant that the fourth match that they were slated to play uh, was actually taken away from the schedule because Thailand had to go over to the Southeast Asian Games. But Nick, you made the point last week, if the Thai men's team were this strong, the attention would be incredible. Uh, now we've got to the point where Thailand are this good as the best associate women's team in the world, uh, and they are beating regular teams, uh, teams regularly, whether they be you know low-end full members or, or other associates. They missed out, obviously, on the World Cup, the Women's Cricket World Cup in 2022 because of the uh, qualifier situation with COVID uh, in Zimbabwe at the end of 2021. So they've been kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Ultimately, you can only sort of beat what's in front of you. And again, they just keep answering the questions of just how good they are. You know, this T20 series is is another result of that um, coming back and winning that series 2-1. Yeah, uh 24-run victory to Zimbabwe in the first game. Uh, good innings from from Shane Mayers, who's uh, you know one of their key bats there. And you know we talk about Uganda not having enough batters, but I mean that that issue plagues Zimbabwe. I mean even even Thailand as well. You know as we say, it's it's common at this level. Um, but yeah, then pretty good easy chase for Thailand. Uh, chase down 106 in uh, the 19th over, five wicket victory in the the second game and. Uh, pretty comprehensive victory in in the third match. Uh, eight wickets with uh, sort of three and a half overs to spare. Nadek and Chantam, of course, 56 not out. Um, I mean, yeah. What more does Thailand need to do? You know, they 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 keep beating teams. Uh, they keep you know proving that they belong at this level. Uh, they keep sort of producing more talent. Uh, you know, uh, Butchertam, yes, she was important to them and, and she's been around a long time. But yeah, Fanita Maya. Cam Chompu, you know, the, the younger generation are coming through as well. Uh, Putawang, of course, um, with with that remarkable 6-for-6 six six in the one-day series. Um, so, yeah, it's just a question of getting more matches. And, you know, you, you talked about the Nepali women's team not playing for almost a year. And to some extent, that's because they sort of haven't qualified for things and, you know, the pathway events aren't there for them. But at the same time, you know the men's team have had a whole bunch of bilaterals scheduled by the board uh, and the women just haven't so the the sort of priorities in cricket are, are reflected all over the place and yeah it just just is that question of you know would would it be the same if it was the men's team and thailand's women you know we've seen their men's team struggle a bit we can get to that in in the southeast asian games but you know their women's team is this good and it is the kind of success story that you would imagine the ICC wants to wants to latch onto, you know, a, a, a you know pretty sizable market, um, non traditional cricketing country, that's basically ticking all the boxes, and and yet they're just kind of not really being given the the next step to move up, and I guess is that to do with uh, the ICC cutting a lot of their uh, lower level tournaments and pathways, you know, to some extent, yes, but. Yeah, it it is frustrating that the the women's game, as, as much as the progress has been made, it's still kind of uh, viewed as a second rate or you know a lower priority than the men's game, and that is disappointing. So Thailand uh, have since moved to the Southeast Asian Games, and we'll talk about that now. They were given an almighty scare by uh, 
Malaysia. Winnie Durasingaman, the team there, almost pulling off one of the all-time shocks. They bowled Thailand out for 52, and in the end, uh, defended by Thailand in Phnom Penh, if you can believe that, uh, winning by 11 or 12 runs, depends on, on who you talk to, given the scorecards have been uh, a little bit tough to find and waiting for news out of the region. Southeast Asian Games, uh, interesting concept on the cricket side of things. Four different formats have got a 50-over competition, a T20 competition, a T10 competition, and a Sixers competition. You have to almost ask yourself how much cricket is too much cricket. Uh, the T20Is take a lot of the significance here, I think, because uh, for the most part, for ICC members, they do, we believe, count as uh, t 20 Internationals that meant a debut for the men's Cambodian uh, international side beating Singapore actually in a bit of a boil over really. But uh, to bring it back to, to Thailand's women, they are strong in this region and you would think that they'd, they'd give, well, all four formats a, a pretty good nudge. But uh, they're not playing in every single format, I believe. Cambodia are the only uh, team at the event to have uh, teams in all four formats and across both men's and women's cricket. I think you had to sort of pick and choose um, whether or not you're the other teams. So Thailand sat out the Sixers, for example. Uh, Indonesia sat out the the T10s. Uh, There's a lot going on here and it's impossible for us to kind of keep tabs on absolutely every single competition here. But again, to bring it back to the point of, of Thailand, they are well and truly too strong for this region. It's just about the the rest of the field kind of aspiring to be at that level. Yeah, it's a, I mean, if you say how much cricket is too much cricket, I think four formats is probably the answer. Um, you know, sixes, T10, T20, 50 overs. I don't, I mean, and they're all sort of very small groups for each tournament. I, I don't know, maybe the idea was to have sort of four exciting quick tournaments, but I feel like if they just had... Even, you know, just T20 and 50 over cricket or, or something like that and slightly longer tournaments, uh, you know, bigger groups or something, maybe that would have been a bit more focused and, and they would have still had the same amount of match practice. I don't know, very, very strange decision to have, yeah, four formats um, of a sport at one tournament. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, who would have thought that we're complaining about too much cricket? But, um <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good to see. Yeah, but you know, good to see Myanmar playing uh, as well. Their women's team is competing in the sixes, the T20, and the fifty-over tournament. Um, that that game between uh, Thailand and Malaysia, the the women's match, very interesting. You know, Thailand bowled out for fifty odd, and then Malaysia couldn't get over the line. You you would have thought that was a golden opportunity for them to, uh, you know, to pull off a, a huge upset. But, uh, yeah, Thailand's bowling too good. Uh, Tapacha Putawong, that name again, with, with three for three. <laughs> um, after, you know, Winnie Durasingham took three for nine. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you'd, you'd really, you'd be kicking yourself not to chase 50-odd. Um, but, uh, yeah, Thailand previously had bowled out the Philippines for nine. That didn't go very well for them. Unfortunately, the Philippines... Yeah, they're they're just a, a bit off the pace, and they really need to um, kind of develop a few more players before they'll they'll really start pushing for results in, in this region at at the women's level. Uh, the, on the on the men's side of things, uh, they're a little bit more competitive, uh, whereas you know Thailand were really struggling on the men's side 
Uh, so that's kind of interesting to keep an eye on. But um, as you say, yes, Cambodia playing their first, we believe, official T20 international and uh, you know, winning against Singapore, which is kind of impressive for a team that's um, basically only been an ICC member for a year or so. To, to play against Singapore, who, yes, they were missing a few players, but it wasn't a totally second-string side. And, you know, you would have thought they should have won this game. So very interesting to see where Cambodia goes next. And, you know, was that just a, a one-off freak event or, or was that you know indicative that there is a, a pretty good depth of talent uh, in Cambodia? Um, I, I know that their administration was lobbying to get cricket into the games. Uh, I think the ACC also... Uh, helped with that so you know it seems like they're doing things right you know focusing on multi-sport games and and trying to uh, trying to increase their footprint that way so yeah Cambodia definitely one to watch uh, both on the men's and women's side Um, but uh, yeah certainly certainly their men's team seem yeah just making a bit of a splash here yeah, I think next week we'll probably look at some of the, the main key news stories as the tournament sort of finishes, just because, as mentioned, that there's just so much cricket going on. Uh, did want to make the point, we, we touched on it at the start, um, Alex Bobby Smith, who uh, is featuring for the Philippines national team, um, she's a product of uh, not only the Central Coast, she's just 15, product of the Central Coast and the New South Wales Pathways. Um, her sister has pedigree being... Um, a strong domestic bowler in, in Australia. Lauren Smith's won multiple BBL, WBBL titles. I think it might be three or four. Can't remember now. Uh, but she comes in. She was sort of flown over, um, met the team for the first time, just 15 years of age. So there is, you know, some talent around uh, other parts of, of this region. We know, again, that Thailand are the, the gold standard, but... You know, you will see, you know, the likes of Elsa Hunter as well playing in this tournament. Similar sort of uh, background in in terms of how she's got into her cricket and, and, and her heritage and how she is playing international cricket. And funnily enough, um, the Filipino men's team, which will feature in the East Asia Pacific T20 qualifier, we know that they have a lot of uh, guys who are dual Australian Filipino passport holders. Uh, you can't get a Filipino uh, passport uh, after you turn 18 years of age. You have to kind of go in and make sure that you've you've done your paperwork before that. So uh, I know that James Smith was approached by the Filipino men's team and, and couldn't play, uh, didn't meet the criteria of, of, of being a, a quote-unquote passport player. And the same to Lauren, who, you know, you would think would be probably pushing almost be pushing Australian selection, but uh, would have qualified for the Philippines had she had her passport given to her before the age of 18 and she would have been able to move from, say, the Philippines to Australia. So different rules, different countries in terms of who can hold a passport and that ties into how eligibility for a lot of these international teams work. We know that in UAE, in Oman, for example, people go there and live for three years for work and that's how they qualify there. It's uh, very fluid and, and there's not like a one-size-fits-all situation from, from country to countries. but fair play to someone like Alex Bobby who's who's going in and, and playing in this tournament and it's a name that um, we should all look out for because she's not only playing international cricket now but heading through uh, New South Wales pathways and, and, you know, if she is to play for the Philippines as she gets a bit older and she plays in more tournaments like this and, you know, the fickle nature of some of the 
the shorter format cricket, you know, an individual performance from Alex, who is an all-rounder, you know, you could see winning games almost with, you know, on her own with the ball or, or off her own bat. You know, there there are a lot of links between Australia and the Philippines and, um, you know, trying to use that as as the Philippines cricket team is, is a pretty clever thing to do. Makes sense. I just, yeah, I mean, they, they still need to do a lot of work um, in developing their own talent at the moment and... Yeah, they, they will struggle for a little bit, but um, you know they only played their first women's T20I sort of a couple of years ago, so uh, they're at the very start of their journey, and and it makes sense to makes sense to sort of tap into that and you know get people like like Alex playing for for the Philippines and and hopefully to help raise the standard and and you know teach teach the other players a few things. And um, it, it reminds me, I think Denmark had a similar issue a, a couple of years ago with some potential uh, dual passport holders and. A similar thing with, uh, you know, that they needed to get their passports before a certain time and, and it didn't uh, work out. But it is interesting to consider how, you know, a lot of the time these, these teams are kind of at the mercy of the uh, the vagaries of, you know, the passport systems. You, know, you mentioned the UAE. Almost nobody gets a passport no matter how long they've lived there. I believe Ahmad Raza still doesn't have a passport, a UAE passport, even though, you know, he's grown up, lived there his whole life. Um, so... It's kind of that's one extreme, and and you know some countries are a bit more liberal with giving out passports than others. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to consider how you know how a cricket team is is sometimes you know at the mercy of of the citizenship process of of the country that they're that they're representing. Some final news this week, and the Australian Indigenous Tour of Vanuatu has started today. A little bit of news on the men's side with Ronald Tari taking over from Patrick Madaltava as a temporary captain. Madaltava off to do some seasonal work in Queensland alongside Andrew Mansale, Junior Kautapau, and Apollinaire Stephen. In a boost for Vanuatu and the players on those work contracts, I Comply, based in regional Queensland, will support their employees on uh, future trips, including being available for the East Asia Pacific T20 World Cup qualifier in July. As we record, the women's side uh, were unable to beat the Australian Indigenous women in the first match. We'll have more news in regards to that tour on next week's show. That's everything in the Emerging Game this week. For more, log on to EmergingCricket.com. But on behalf of Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, have a good week.